All right, so we're going to be starting in chapter three. Um, I'll wait for Alex to get back, but last time we finished section one, which you'll recall went from the beginning all the way through chapter two. Section three or section two here begins in chapter three and goes to the end of chapter five. So chapter five, verse 20. And that, then it starts in section three. So there's only four sections to Ecclesiastes. We're now beginning the second one. <clears throat> okay. Did anyone have any outstanding questions from last week or something that you feel like it would re be good to address before we moved on? No? Okay. All right. <clears throat> so... Just as an introduction, we ended the last section with Koaleth having introduced us to the concept of uncertainty, that there's more gain in wisdom than in pleasure. At the beginning of this section, Koaleth elaborates on this idea, showing that there is a time for every non-sinful action. <clears throat> so I'm going to read... Um, I'm going to read verses 1 to 15, which I hope we can get through all of that today. And then we can um, proceed. The questions I have on there should correspond to the notes I have, so it, they should be in order, roughly. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season... And a time, actually, I'm going to read out of here. Okay. There is a fixed time for all things and an appointed season for all undertakings under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to save, a time to break down and a time to build up houses, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to rejoice, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather up stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend garments and a time to sew them together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. He who laboreth hath therefore no advantage from that wherein he laboreth. I'll switch over to this just for this part. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man." 
I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Okay, you can give those to um, Mr. Steve there, and he can give one there, and then maybe one to Mr. Meandering. Okay, so I'm going to start, I'll read over uh, verses 1 and 2. Thank you very much, Alex. Does anyone else not have a paper or would like one? There's plenty, so... Okay. Okay. <clears throat> if you need a paper, let me know. I have some up here. They have their questions on them. Okay. There, chapter 3, verse 1. There is a fixed time for all things and an appointed season for all undertakings under heaven. So we, learn, we can learn from that that time is set unalterably. And this puts us in mind of the fixed cycles on earth, the sun, wind, and water from chapter 1. We also know that there's an appropriate time for all non-sinful action. Each item is the opposite of the other. You can see that, a time for war and a time for peace, a time to tear and a time to mend. Um, so this back and forth, this swaying or oscillating is reminiscent of the rising and setting of the sun, the wind blowing this way and that, and the passage of time, or this endless cycle that we've been looking at. This then covers the entire spectrum, from birth to death and everything in between. So there's a time for everything, even things that seem bad, in quotes, like war, rending, tearing, breaking. So how does the rhythm or flow of verses 2 to 8 contribute to Coalesce's point that there is a fixed time for all things and an appointed season for all undertakings under heaven? That's the first question. <clears throat> how does the rhythm or flow of that back and forth from one extreme to the other, how does that contribute to Coalesce's point that there is a fixed time for all things and an appointed season for all undertakings under heaven? <clears throat> Any ideas? Uh, Stephen? It just gives evidence for it. You know, he shows there's a, there's a good thing and then the parallel bad thing that happens and you know, obviously throughout all those verses. Yeah. Now, I, I did use the term bad, but it's in quotes. But I take your point, right? We don't we don't want to think it's the sinful and the righteous, right? So, but yes, agreed. Uh, so, how does that contribute to the idea that there's a there's a fixed time for all things, Stephen? I think how does that contribute to that idea? Well, um, I don't know. Um... Or maybe you think it doesn't. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I just I, I'm seeing the, what he's how he's laying it out that it, that it's kind of giving kind of I guess backing up what he's what he's maybe put forth. But um, well, 
Let me you can think of it I, in music, in terms of music or something. Maybe. Can I read my note on my from my Bible? What it, what it has here, just for these verses, it says that he's listing all the good good times in life, and there are many to be enjoyed, but each good time has its corresponding bad time, which brings frustration and perplexity. Okay. I don't know if that adds or is a different thought from what you're putting forth or not. No, that's good. I mean, and that's kind of the idea is that there's a time. I keep wanting to stand up because I can't see you, but. Um, so there's a time for everything, right? It's not haphazard. It doesn't just happen, right? There's an appointed time. God has designed it this way, right? So when you see that back and forth, there's a time for war. There's a time for peace. We don't know exactly when that time is, right? That kind of raises that awareness in our mind. But at least we know from here that God does know when that is and he's appointed it. Okay. All right. It's kind of like saying, you know, there's a time for winter and there's a time for summer, right? It's not exactly fixed this day precisely, but it's clear that those things flow. Scott, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, just that, um, yeah, there's a time to do things, but doing the opposite when it's a time to do one thing is actually bad and wrong in this instance. So. Yeah. You know, it's foolish to laugh when it's a time to weep. It's foolish to make war when it's time for peace. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Scott. That's a very good point. And that, and this is really the focus of what he's talking about, right? It's not that war is bad and peace is good all the time. It's that one, each is appropriate in its time. That's the idea. There's a time for this and a time for that. So the thing itself isn't bad but there's an appropriate time for it. If you do it outside of its appropriate time, then, as Scott said, that would be foolish or sinful or bad, right? <clears throat> okay? So this really is about time. No, not surprisingly, given, you know, the, that's the oft-repeated phrase there, right? There's a time for this, there's a time for that. There's a time for this. So there's a time for each thing and its corresponding opposite. So neither extreme is bad in this case, right? All these cases that he brings up, none of these things are inherently bad, sinful, wrong. They're just things that have corresponding opposites. They're actions that you can take. Make sense? So we're not, again, talking about sinful things. It's not saying it's okay sometimes to get drunk and then other times to not have anything to drink. That those are not the extremes he's talking about. These are extremes within the bounds of righteous behavior, okay? If applied at the appropriate time, okay? Which is always the key. And that's his point, ultimately. You have a hesitating question? I kind of sense. Well, I didn't want to interrupt. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know that it... I would say the time you do it would would be more a matter of wisdom than a moral right or wrong. Um, I think the, the the reason why we do whatever we do or don't do would would determine the morality of it, whether it's whether it's sinful or unsinful. Is is not again like you said. I think the the things themselves, as you said, are immoral, but why we're doing them or not doing them. Um, would would be what would determine whether it's uh, sinful or not sinful. The timing would just be a matter of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Sure. And 
ultimately, I guess the point is that that's not even Solomon's or coalesce focus here. It's just the timing itself. So, for example, being born and dying, it's not a moral issue at all or a wisdom issue. These are just things in life. And so you see God has placed things in life with certain times that are appropriate to each thing. And yes, there are elements to that that might bring in sinful ethical issues. They might be moral issues sometimes, but not always. Ultimately, the idea here is that God simply has designed things to be structured in a, in a way that's unchanging, right? <clears throat> Okay, so again, that's, that's his first two verses there. There's a fixed time for all things and an appointed season for all undertakings under heaven. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so no matter where we look, God is, so this would be sort of my answer to that question, not that what we heard is wrong, but just to summarize, um, no matter where we look, God has set the boundaries and determined the structure. Things are fixed and repeat endlessly. It's that same kind of cycle idea that he's brought up before. <clears throat> so we sort of already talked about this, but do you see any inherently sinful actions in this list? And how about unpleasant or difficult things? I think we've kind of already touched on that, but is there anything anyone wanted to add on that point? No? Oh, yeah. Zach Huebner. Um, one thing that jumped out at me was like a time to kill. Again, like in the context of everything in the list is not sinful. Is that like, or I don't know if with your study that elaborated more on that, but is that like a time to kill animals or plants or, you know, no, I, think I assume it's, it's like, not talking about murder, right? Yeah. I would assume it's like you're slaughtering people. You're killing people. There's a time to kill people, right? So that goes along with the war part. Yeah. there. Yeah. Or just like if you're the government, there's a time to, to murder someone who's committed some crime. There's a time to bear the sword. There's a reason that the government's been given the sword there's a time if, you know, you go to war with a country, you're going to kill people. It's appropriate, right? Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from, like, I don't know, like, murder is in what? Like, if, if I'm at war with someone and we're in the trenches together and I come up and slit their throat, but they've done nothing to me, what do you call that? know the actual act we're in the middle of war but you're murdering people Hmm. Um, there is a fixed time for all things 
and an appointed season for all undertakings under heaven. Uh, with the ending of section one. Um, in reference to the season. Yeah, there's a season for everything. That's how I would take it. And which fits with what he's talking about here, right? And that fits the context. Um, yeah. Okay, so. Yeah. I guess the the uh, only other conflict I would see is there's a time to love and a time to hate, and is that in reference to people? And in Matthew five, we're told to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us too. Right. Or is it in reference to something else? Well, that's a good question. So let's let's think about that. Do you can you think of anything, any reference in scripture? That might indicate that we are to hate something or someone. Yeah. Right? So there's an appropriate time to do that. You see what I mean? Um, there's an appropriate time to kill. So what is the context of that? That's, that's the dilemma. Right? <clears throat> okay. Um, so... What do we learn about the context then from these verses? We've kind of already talked about it, but that's one of your questions. So I'd say that God has a fixed time for all things that are non-sinful, and all of our actions then are subject to this plan of God's. I'd also say that this would imply that our actions to change or control these things apart from God are futile. <clears throat> okay, so verse 9, he who labors has therefore no advantage from that uh, wherein he laboreth. So there, the question is, how do those two things fit together? We come from this one idea of hey, God has a fixed time for everything. Um, there's an appropriate time for everything, and you can't change that. <clears throat> and then he states, in the ESV, it's, it's a question, but there's a definite implied answer to it. What gain has the worker from his toil? The idea is that the worker has no gain from his toil. Um, and Ginsburg actually says that he who labors has therefore no advantage from that wherein he labors. So what do you think these two things have to do with each other? Why does he juxtapose those two ideas? Or let me phrase it this way. In juxtaposing those two ideas, what do you learn about them? <clears throat> Stacy. Thinking... Um, the idea that though you need to toil and work on the earth, nothing you do in any of your endeavors are going to prevent these seasons from happening. Right. You, you're not going to change what God has planned. You're going to change his structure, right? Uh, Jake? 
Yeah, just building on that a little bit. This passage is really unique because we are all, right now, we are beings that are, you know, created in and live in time. We're, We're limited and stuck in time in a way that, like, eternal beings are not. And it's this commentary on what do we do about that? Like, how should we think about time, right? And you think about time, we talked about being totally in God's control and cyclical, right? When it's, if there's a war going on, it's terrible, and you think, my goodness, this feels like it will never end. This verse, this, this passage teaches us, yes, it will end. And if things are amazing, and it's just the best they've ever been for you, there's a warning there too. Will things always be this way? No, they won't. Yeah. So, so we're beings that are stuck in time, and here's God reminding us He is in charge of time, and He sets these things out. And because we have such a short frame of reference, it may not feel this way, but these things are cyclical, right? Like this, like the stream flowing down to the, to the ocean. And I think it's just a cool um, way to sort of keep us humble and remind us that we are in time. We can't change that by our labors. And a wise way to go through life is just to remember that God is in control and that we're stuck in time and not to think that we can change that, but to live it sort of leave that part up to God and know that these things will happen and just day by day. It, it's, it's just interesting to have a, that sort of a perspective on how do we live out our lives in time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he does, believe it or not, coalesce also thought about some of those things and he, um, he gets to them. It's just in a couple of verses. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh... oh, you have a question. All right, go ahead, Don. Not only, uh, yes, if you look at time, we are in time, but we are immortal. We are not eternal, but we are immortal. And uh, time will come to an end, but we will not. And so if you look at just time, then there is no no, uh, reward or no uh, advantage. But if we look at eternity, which he will, you know, when he he'll, at the end of this section where he talks about God, then then there is reward. So, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Thank you both. Appreciate the comments. Um, <clears throat> okay, verse nine, uh, we already did. Uh, so yeah, since times are fixed, your labors to change the outcomes are useless. This doesn't mean you gain nothing in a general sense but that you gain nothing in terms of changing the ultimate outcome or satisfying you in a lasting way, which are some of the things we've already talked about. 10 and 11, I have considered the business which God hath given to the sons of man to busy themselves therewith. He hath made it all beautiful in its season. He hath also put eternity into their heart, only that man understandeth not the work which God hath made from beginning to end. So he's made it all beautiful in its season. This is another indication that we're, sin never meets that qualification, right? God might use sin in different ways, but these are not the things we're talking about, okay? Sin is never beautiful, in that sense. So we're speaking of things within allowed behavior, uh, and he's not speaking of things that have no beautiful and appropriate time. So God has put this knowledge into man without revealing his plan completely. That's the idea of he's put eternity into the hearts of man. 
um, but man understandeth not the work which God has made from the beginning to the end. He doesn't get the whole picture. He doesn't know all the details. Uh, so we know there's an appropriate time to say, for example, endure the hardship of a difficult job, and there's a time to leave and find a new job. We just don't know when exactly that is, okay? Not that anyone could relate to that. So with those two things in mind, what conclusion do these, I guess I should say two things, in case there's any British people in here, what conclusion do these two truths lead to? On the one hand, God has made a time for everything, right? He's made everything beautiful in his time. And on the other hand, we don't know when that time is exactly. What does that, what does that inevitably lead to in our part? Yes. The conclusion Bridget. is that we're not oh. in charge. Yeah, we're not in charge. Fair enough. That's probably about what you were going to say. Yeah, just lead us to trusting God more. Yeah, exactly. So, hey, there's a God out there who happens to have made things according to a certain structure, and we can't tell exactly when the right time is, but he allows us access into his throne room to ask him and pray to him and figure those things out. That's, that's huge. Don't undersell that, because we live in a world where the people that have no faith in a God who's in control of everything are genuinely afraid every single day that everything might end. You know, like you hear about this all the time. There's many ways they work out it could happen, but they're, they're worried about the end of the economy, the end of the country, the end of our nation, the end of the world. I mean, people worry about that stuff all the time because they don't see any God over us who actually works things according to his purpose. So it seems an easy thing to say that is huge as you walk through this life, whether or not you believe that. Yeah, absolutely. And better yet, they're the one to fix it. Oh, yeah, because they have a solution for you. In the front here, JP's got a... I think I saw something over there, too. <clears throat> so, in a more mundane way, it also helps you kind of plan your life in the sense that when you have kids, certain things are close to you that you would like to do, but you can't do. And you just have to take that in stride, whereas when, you know, your kids leave your house, other things are open to you that might have been close to you. And so there's a lot of times that I've had the conversation with Natalie that, like, look, there's just, this isn't the time of life to be able to pull these things off that we would want to do, you right. know? Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's, you know, he does, um, I was kind of jokingly saying that earlier, but when he starts talking about the injustice that is in the place of justice and the wickedness that's in the place of righteousness. So our equivalent today would be the courts. There's corruption in the courts and there's corruption in the church, right? How do you deal with those things? Well, he looks back to this structure that God has as a way of encouraging him. Yeah, God will judge that in his time. He has a time for that, right? But you're absolutely right. Um, there are times or seasons, as you said, in life where certain things are appropriate and another time when other things are appropriate. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's good to remind ourselves of that, that, you know, um, just because this is hard or this isn't exactly what I want to do doesn't mean I'll never get to do it. It's just this is not appropriate right now. And so that's ultimately the conclusion we have to come to when we're faced with things in life we don't like or that are difficult is, 
well, there is a sovereign God in heaven who's made things this way, structured things that way. Even if I don't like it, my part is to accept that lot and be grateful for it, right? Because there's plenty to be grateful in it. Um, okay. That can almost seem like fatalism. Um, and um, when we understand that God is good, that he's wise, and that he's in control, then we don't have to be fatalistic. You know, well, you know, I can't do anything about it or pessimistic or, or uh, uh, passive about things. We can, we can say, God, you know, uh, God is... God is good, God is wise, and he's in control. When those three things are, if you take any one of them away, you got trouble. Yeah. But if you have all three of them, then there's no worries. Right. And yes, of course. Um, and actually, to that point, um, verse, verses 12 and 13, what Koaleth comes to is that I knew then that there was no good for them, that is man, but to rejoice and do themselves good all their life. And also that if a man eat and drink and see pleasure in all his labor, this is a gift of God. So that's what, you know, same concepts that Don's referencing is, yeah, if there was a God out there who's in control of everything, but he were just a jerk, then yeah, we couldn't take comfort in that. But if there is a loving God who's working all things for good for those that are called according to his purposes, then you can trust that all things are working together for good. So first he looks at the structure and he realizes, hey, there is a God who's over all of this. Um, and so the best thing then is that we should be grateful and rejoice and obey God, which does them good. So enjoy the fruits of labor and labor itself and see them as gifts from God not ends unto themselves. So this is another question for you. How might that small difference in seeing our life as a gift from God, as opposed to seeing it as our life, how might that change our behavior and approach to life in general or decisions? Okay. Owen, you have any ideas? put it simply we do things for god's glory rather than our own selfish desires would yeah. be the main difference yeah that's that's great so we have god in mind when we're doing things there's a we believe in a teleology right that god has a will for the way he designed things and so it's not up to kind of our predilections how things are to be done it is that god is like no, this is the way. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I also think it leads to, to, it would lead to gratitude, right? Uh, we'd recognize, hey, we're in this situation, but a loving God has put me here. Sort of the necessary conclusion, if, if we're seeing these things as a gift from the Lord, we should be grateful for it. That includes trials, that includes difficulties. 
Because no matter what situation you're in, if you really believe that God's in control of it and he's a loving God and he's doing all things for good, for the good of those who, who trust him and believe in him, well, then that should lead to gratitude on our part. Whether that's someone dying or us losing a job or whatever, we know that that is for good, right? Um, so it should lead to gratitude. Um, we should also recognize that these things, though pleasant and enjoyable, uh, are not things that will satisfy. Only that God, who's the source of these gifts, he's the only thing that satisfies. So these things that he gives us, pleasurable or enjoyable or difficult that we grow through or whatever it is, those things in and of themselves are not going to satisfy. Does Alex have a question? Or Jen? <clears throat> Two comments. Uh, along with that contrast of there's a time for different things, when you've had bitter, I think you recognize sweetness. You know, like so yeah. when there's trials in your life, I think it adds to the gratitude for other things when you recognize that things are a gift when you only have pleasure. Sometimes you forget that it is a gift. Yeah. And so they complement each other in that way. And then I think also with um, when you recognize that God is giving you things just in life from my own experience, when I get too focused on the gift and I hold on to it and I forget it's a gift, one, you see the dissatisfaction from it more and you don't enjoy it the way you're supposed to, it just ruins everything. But when you recognize that God has given you things, then you actually have the right attitude to be able to enjoy them the way that God has meant for them to be enjoyed, which then fuels giving thanks to him, which then allows you to enjoy the thing he's given. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those, those are all good points. Thank you. Um, okay. I had an example here, and I thought it was... Um, I'll just kind of wing it. I don't see it here, but I was imagining like an example would be you plan a perfect, imagine this is possible, right? So this is hypothetical. You plan a vacation with your kids included that you that's going to be perfect vacation, right? Trip, Trip whatever it is, right? You ah, okay. Okay. So, but the idea is this isn't about you as the parent. This is about the kids, right? So you plan the perfect trip for the kids, and the, the assumption in this is that if they actually follow along with the plan and do the things that you plan to do, that they're going to have maximum optimal enjoyment the more closely they follow the plan, okay? Does that make sense? This is our hypothetical. So now you go on this trip, the more the kid strays from that plan, what do you think happens to them, not to you as the parent? The mountain. They fall down the mountain, Esri. <laughs> or, right, they just enjoy it less and less, right? So if you think about it, the more, if you can imagine, we don't have a whiteboard here, but if you can imagine like some line that's like their optimal enjoyment, and if they perfectly follow the plan, they're right along here. So when they deviate from that, they get less enjoyment and less pleasure out of it, okay? That's a silly example, but that's really ultimately what we do when we don't follow God's plan, right? When we deviate and do our own thing, we're less satisfied and less contented, right? Because God's designed things for our satisfaction. 
I can't remember Piper's exact quote, but it's something like, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So if we actually want to glorify God, the more we do that, then the more we're satisfied. Okay? So that's kind of the idea here, is that if we're looking at things as a gift from God, and then as something that we enjoy giving praise and glory back to God, we actually get more satisfaction out of that than living any other way. Okay, so the final two verses, 14 and 15. I knew that whatever God hath made, the same continueth forever. To it nothing can be added, and from it nothing can be taken. And God has done, so, uh, and God hath so done it that, let me try this one again. God has made this, uh, I knew that whatever God hath made, the same continueth forever. To it nothing can be added, and from it nothing can be taken. And God hath so done it that men may fear before him. What hath been was long ago, and what is to be was long ago, for God recalleth what is past. Okay, so whatever God makes continues forever, and man can't add to it or take from it. God has done it intentionally so that man is dependent on him and fears him. From this we can learn that there's no um, predicting the future or figuring out how to predict or change things, because if they were, we could depend on that and our wisdom and not depend on the Lord. Um, so fearing before God then means that we need to be seeking guidance and wisdom and direction from God continually. Otherwise, we begin to go wrong in our direction. We begin to rely more and more on our wisdom or our ability to figure it out as opposed to trusting that God, who has a plan for all things, has also revealed that to his obedient children. Okay, so in summary... This is just my summary. I think I have on there a question for you. How would you summarize it? You can... Well, I guess this is an obvious one, but um, what is God's revealed intention in setting these unchangeable seasons and times and not revealing the details to man? Charlotte, did you hear that when I was reading it? You don't have the answer? Alakai, let me read it again, and we'll see if we'll see if Charlotte can pick it out. Okay, so if Charlotte can get it, I think everyone in here can get it. Okay, I'll read it in English. I mean, modern English. <laughs> okay. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can, so Charlotte, what you're listening to is why did God do this? What was his purpose, right? Okay, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people may fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So why do you think God made things that way, Shabby? Why do you think he 
done it so. So that people would what? Believe in him. Believe in him. Okay, what does the verse say though? Fear him. Yeah, fear before him. Live in fear before him. Good job, Charlotte. Okay, see, that's not hard, right? It's pretty simple. Good job, Charlotte, again. So God made things in a way that endures forever. We can't add anything to it. We can't take anything away from it. And the reason he did it that way is so that we would fear him. Part of that is we recognize he's in control, not us, right? We rely on him. We depend on him. That's part of fearing him. We don't have a, um, we're not in control, okay? Um, all right, so that is the end of verse 15. Um, any questions on that? Any, what was that? Oh, I think what he's done it this way, meaning structured things, organized things, and an unchanging way the the focus would be what he started off at at the beginning of the chapter saying right, so 14 says i perceive that whatever god does endures forever mm -hmm. nothing can be added to it so the it there is what god does forever then it says god has done it so god has done the enduring for, like, i think it's that what he made so here, here's how i i think it goes and then you tell me your Tell me your feedback. But I think the idea is back at the beginning, there's a fixed time for all things and an appointed season for all undertakings under heaven. That's how he made things, right? It's with inherent within the structure. So when you look at 14, I knew that whatever God has made, which is that structure and the, the world and everything in it and how it operates according to those premises, then the same continueth forever. It's going to go on that way, right? To it, nothing can be added. In other words, we can't add it, add to it. We can't change it. These are the, that's the way he made it. That's what I would. So would, why do you think that causes people to fear him? Oh, for obvious reasons, because people struggle against the structure that God has in place. It might be their genetics. Wouldn't that cause them to hate him, though? Well, if... You're, it could, right? And in fact, that's what the world does is they hate God because they refuse to submit to him. But when you do submit to that structure and you submit to him in fear as God, then you realize he's a loving and gracious and merciful God. And that changes your perspective. Does that answer your... But we don't have a choice to submit, right? I mean, these cycles that he lists here, what choice do we have in the matter? Well, I think it makes a big difference whether you submit to it or not. No one has a choice in it in that sense. You can't change it, so you have no choice. But if you do submit to it and you fear him, as he points out, then you are blessed in, in a general sense, right? If you refuse to submit to that, you continue to struggle against it and battle against it and you get nowhere. So I'd say that describes the condition of an unbeliever's heart. Right, which is hating God, struggling against the way he's made things, trying to change things, futilely fighting against it, as opposed to those who also are under the same unchanging reality, but they submit to God's authority and fear him as God, 
they then are in 12 and 13, it's good for them to rejoice and do themselves good, eat and drink and take pleasure in the works that God's given you. So that's a, they're under the same reality and under the same God, but one submits to it and finds pleasure in it. The other fights against it. That makes sense? Yeah. Questions or? Could it be that one's chosen and one's not? Could be. <laughs> He's planting trouble. Okay. Closing I mean, comments. Maybe, maybe what the tension that you're kind of um, hitting on, JP, is God's sovereignty and our responsibility or our free will which, I mean, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're hitting on, but I'm sensing, throughout this whole reading, I've been kind of sensing that of, there's kind of a, a bit of a mystery there of, we, we're not robots, so we do choose, and we, our choices do affect the outcomes of our lives. But then there's a sense of, well, we can't change it either. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Yeah. So, Jay, I, in class is over, so if anyone needs to leave, please leave. No one's keeping you. I, JP, I do, to reformat your question, I won't even try and answer it. I just want to hear it, and I'll think about it, and I can come back to you next time. But I want to make sure I'm understanding the, the trouble you're having with it.